Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, this is the section we were in when we met last week. We're going to pick it up and pick up where we left off. Jesus told them that the only sign that they would get beyond the signs that they had already been getting, and we're going to touch on that in just a little bit, was the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Now, when we left off, you remember he had said that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And we dealt with why, because God had already been producing signs. And we're going to be talking about that tonight, looking at it and some more. And he had been doing the miracles and the signs and the wonders, fulfilling prophecy. And they said, that's not enough. And that's where we left off last week. A lot of times ourselves, and we all have done it. When God has promised to reveal to us his will, when he's promised to lead us and to guide us and, and the scriptures are full of promises, we all have a tendency to say, yeah, but God, if you'll do this, then I'll believe. Or if you'll do this, then. And we all have a tendency to say you're not capable of communicating it well enough. But if you'll listen to me, I'll tell you how you can communicate it better. Isn't that what we say? That's very much how we say it. And then we don't realize it, but that's just the way we are because it's our flesh. Jesus, we dealt with that last week. Jesus dealt with that. We're going to look tonight now, though, at the fact that he says, I've been giving you signs. The only sign, you want a big sign? I'm gonna, there's not going to be any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Go with me to Matthew 16. Jump over to chapter 16 and look at verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, it says, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So here we see another time that Jesus says the same thing, but he adds something here, or Matthew records something here that Jesus says that's been added. How many of you remember the old saying, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning? We all remember that one? In the same way, he, he kind of illustrates this, and he goes, you guys know how to recognize the signs of the weather, why aren't you able to recognize the fact that signs are being fulfilled in your presence? See, we're, we're going to come back to that Jonah prophecy in just a little bit. But what I want to talk to you about is some things we've been hinting at and talking about earlier in our study. Here they are asking for a sign, and he's already been giving them signs because of the prophecies that have already been there. And that's why in 16, he says to them, you guys know how to recognize the signs when you look at the clouds and stuff. Why aren't you able to recognize the signs? that are happening right now in your midst. Now, real quick, and I'm just going to chase this real quick because we're going to go back and look at the signs he was, he'd already been giving them. We live in a day and age right now where I want you to hear me. Signs are being fulfilled about the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's actually more prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament about Jesus' second coming to the earth than there was about his first coming. And the scriptures are very clear as to what we're to be watching for and looking for to recognize how close it's coming I'm just going to touch on a couple real quick. One of them is the fact that the nation of Israel is a nation again in their land. Now, people say, yeah, no, the prophecy is talking about how he's going to regather them and bring them back. And they're all going to believe, yes, that's going to happen. But that's not what's happened in the regathering of Israel in 1948. People think, wait a minute, Jim, isn't that been the fulfillment of those prophecies? No, actually, what happened in 1948 is the fulfillment of what needed to happen so those other prophecies will be fulfilled in the end. Listen to what I'm talking about. If you don't know, I hope you do, but the scripture is very clear that during the tribulation period, 
the Antichrist is going to come and go against Israel and attack Israel. And he's going to come into a temple that's going to be built at that time. And he's going to declare himself to be God. And two-thirds of the Jews, the prophecies say in the book of Zechariah, are going to be killed during that time. One-third is going to run out into the wilderness and be protected by God for three and a half years. And Jesus is going to come back there to where they are and redeem them and defeat the enemies on the way to Jerusalem in the Battle of Armageddon and all. But in order for the Jews to be chased out of Israel... They had to first come back in. Oh, by the way, if you go look at the prophecies, it talks about all the enemies and the nations that are going to be against Israel. And it lists Russia and China and Iran. It also listed Turkey. But if you've been following politics, anything for years, Turkey's been an ally of Israel for a long time. But just within the last 10 years, they've changed. Signs of the prophecies are being fulfilled in our day. I could go into that the whole rest of the night because that's my passion. But let me just say this to you as we look at Jesus telling the people of his day, look, prophecies are being fulfilled in your midst and you're oblivious to it. Oh, yeah, you can look at the weather and recognize it. Why don't you look at the scriptures and let them speak to you? We have to be careful we don't fall into that same trap. Know what the scripture says. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. They go together. The prophecies are here. Folks, start reading. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, Jim. I don't understand it like you do. I don't, I don't have the ability. I'm about to blow that up a little later tonight. So let me just give you a little heads up now. If you start thinking, well, I can't understand it like you do, um, I'm going to blow that up. So start getting rid of that thought right now. So go with me to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> what I want to point out to you is I'm going to show you just some prophecies in the Old Testament that were, giving, that were signs that God had given in prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling while he was on the earth. And I want you to notice that these signs that the Father had purposed for Jesus to do all along, that he had been doing, even though they wanted some greater sign, they had been there all along. Jesus only did, and you're going to see this clearly tonight, hopefully, Jesus only did what the Father had him to do. In Isaiah 42, listen to what it says in verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Stop. Does that ring a bell with anybody here? Is there something here that that sounds familiar? I heard someone whisper it. At his baptism. What did the father do at Jesus' baptism? He spoke and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, with whom my soul delights. Oh, keep reading. I have put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. He'll not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to do what? To the open the eyes of who? Of the blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So here in Isaiah 42, the scripture clearly said that that this chosen one, this servant was going to come, and whom God was fully pleased. And at Jesus' baptism, The Spirit came down in the form of a dove. Don't think that's when the Spirit came upon him. He'd always been God from the day he was born and even before that. But God demonstrated the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. He voiced it with his voice. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased or with whom my soul delights. And if you had known the scriptures, what would have happened is you heard the father say, this is my chosen one with whom my soul delights. You would have said Isaiah 42. And you'd go back and you'd say, you know what? The signs are being fulfilled. Of course, the prophecy went on to say that he'd open the eyes of the blind. Go to Isaiah 61. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is the passage that Jesus refers to along with Isaiah 42 when John the Baptist is sitting in prison saying, Are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus says, You go back and tell John this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach what? Good news to the poor. What did he tell them to go back and tell John? The good news is being preached to the poor. 
the blind are receiving their sight. The, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He tell, he's referring to 61 and 42 again. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening a prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Listen to me, folks. As we've already dealt with in our previous studies, and we dealt with it last week, Remember when uh, the rich man was in Hades and he wanted Lazarus to go warn his brothers. And Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. And he's like, no, they need something more. Have someone come back from the dead and then they'll believe. And what does Abraham say? Even if someone should come back, if they don't believe the prophets, if they don't believe the word of God, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Listen to me. That here is for us as well. Everything, everything we need about where we're at in our life and what's going on in the world, all that's happening around us, God's already been speaking about it long before, and you need to know the Word, because He can't bring it to your remembrance as He's promised, unless you what? Unless you put it in. All He asks us to do is read it. See, many of us have been messed up over the years because we've been taught to memorize Scripture. By the way, has anybody here, show of hands, tried to memorize Scripture? How'd you do? How'd you do? Yeah, see, but listen, some of you probably did better than others, right? Because some people are more gifted at memorizing than other people, correct? But if it were up to memorization, God has just said, I've already predetermined that some people will do a better job than other people at getting the word in. He doesn't leave it up to memorization. The scripture says, read it, treasure it, study it, love it, meditate on it. And all we're to do is just put it in. And he's the one who will bring it to our remembrance. But you've got to put it in. And I just want you to see, just like they were missing clear prophecies that were happening right in their midst, and they were saying, yeah, but could you do something really big? And he says, I'm doing stuff that's been here in the Word all along, and you're not paying attention to it. You want a big sign? Well, I'll give you one that was already prophesied, uh, but it'll be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And we'll come to Jonah in just a little bit, but go to Isaiah 53. Did you know that the Scripture actually talked about the fact that he would die and that he would rise again. The Old Testament prophecies prophesied about that as well. We've already looked in our previous studies a few weeks ago how Jesus told them three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10 that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. Three days later he would rise and they were still oblivious to it. But in Isaiah 53, look at verses 7 through 12. Again, talking about this servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his what? Yeah. All right, so he dies, correct? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here the prophecy clearly says this servant is going to die. Yet after he's died, after his, his, he's been put to death by the father and the pl pleasure of the Lord to do it. Once his soul has made an offering for guilt, he's going to see his offspring. He's going to prolong his days. He is going to be accounted righteous and he's going to have <coughs> excuse me, the spoil divided with him. The Bible actually says that he's going to die, but he was also going to live again. Go with me to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. Look at verses 10 and 11. And by the way, please don't think that the Psalms are just a bunch of songs. There is probably more prophecy in the book of Psalms than many of the other books. Psalm 16, look at verses 10 and 11. Preserve me, O God. Sorry, chapter 16. Let's see what a verse 10 instead of verse 1. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Here again, David is writing, and David says in chapter 16, verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim, how's this talking about Jesus? Well, this is where Scripture interprets Scripture helps us a lot. Go to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, as you know, Peter is now preaching at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come upon them in the upper room, and Peter begins to preach. By the way, had Peter been working on this sermon for a while? No, Peter had actually just been spending the days prior to that saying, don't know the guy. But the Holy Spirit takes over. And in the middle of his sermon, in verses 22 through 36, this is what the Spirit says through Peter. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Remember Isaiah 42, we saw how God says before it happens, I tell you it. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, his body rotted. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the, all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, the prophecies were there. They were being fulfilled in his midst. They were wanting him to be more flashy, more impressive. But the prophecy said he wasn't going to be that kind of a guy. He wasn't going to be, you know, calling out loudly in the streets. He was going to not even uh, crush a bruised reed or he was just going to be meek and mild. Yet at the same time, there were so many prophecies that were happening. Oh, the fact that the prophecies would say that he would be born in Bethlehem. And if they would have done any research, they would have found that he was born in Bethlehem. And all the way through, the prophecies were being fulfilled in their midst and they were oblivious to it. And what do they say? Yeah, that's not enough for us. That's not enough for us. But if you'll just do this. And Jesus said in an evil and adulterous generation says that what God has done and is doing is not enough. But he then goes on and he says, go back to Matthew chapter 12. You look, look at what he says. Jim, that was really interesting where you said, mm -hmm. my, uh, Christ, uh, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. I've never read that like yeah. that. Yeah, it's very clear. This Jesus, he makes it real clear. Yep, he's all there. Matthew chapter 12. Look at what he then goes on and says. All right, let's go to verse 40. For just as, well, we'll go back to verse 39. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I think for the fun of it, I think it will help us to go back and read both of those stories real quick that he's referencing. Because I, I don't know everybody in here and how much Bible knowledge you have. So I don't want to just assume you know these stories. You might know one of them, but not the other one. Or you might not know either. Or you might know them both. Let's just take a look at them real quick. Go with me back to Jonah chapter 3. Book of Jonah chapter 3, and look at verses 1 through 10. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, 
And hopefully you all know from your childhood Bible stories about how his, he ran from God's call to go preach to Nineveh because he didn't want them to be forgiven. And he went in the wrong direction and God had a fish swallow him and spit him back up on the land after he'd been in the belly of the fish for three days. I love verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Isn't God gracious? He came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. And I think after what he had been through, I think it was easier to say yes this time, don't you? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and it published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here Jonah comes and he preaches, and the whole city repents. By the way, let me just say something to you. Some of you have a desire to preach. Did Jonah want them to hear it? The greatest revival we see in the whole scripture, the preacher didn't even want it to happen. How often have we been told it's up to us? You've got to make sure you're preaching it right and, and all this stuff. No, this is the work of God, folks. It doesn't hurt for us to be prayed up and prepared and, and, and praying for God to move. But don't think for a second that they don't hear because you weren't prepared. Go ahead. It says they believe God's message. They believe God's message. That's amazing. It was God that got a hold of them. Jim. What's interesting, uh, Jonah did too. The reason he didn't want to preach it was because he knew they would uh, relent. Yeah, and he knew God would forgive them if they did. He knew. That's what he goes on later in the story and even says, I knew they were going to do that. And I knew you were going to do that. That's why I didn't want to do it. I'm sorry. It's a short message. It was a short message. Is that why they responded? <laughs> wow. 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 I, I, I don't even know how to take that. You're, 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 hey, take her home. All right. Take her home. All right. Go to first Kings chapter 10. That was pretty good, though, Debbie. I'll give you that one. That's pretty good. First Kings chapter 10. Some of you might not know this story about how the Queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 13. It says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue and with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he had at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I didn't believe the reports until I came in my own eyes and had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to the king, of Sol king Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones, and the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. And she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. So here, the queen of the south goes up because she's heard about all this amazing things that God's doing through the reign of Solomon and the wisdom that he had that God had given him. 
and she was blown away. And Jesus says, um, you guys are wanting a sign? The men in Nineveh are going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and contemn you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south is going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. What or who is this something greater than Solomon and greater than Jonah? Jesus himself. I wrote in my notes here. Think of how much God had revealed to them with Jesus. God himself standing right there. He wasn't just a picture of God. He was God himself there in the flesh. And he had been walking with them and eating with them and living with them, fulfilling prophecies left and right. And here they were looking at God himself. And they said, that's not enough. And folks, we have to be all honest and say, we all struggle with that a little bit ourselves. We still say, it's not enough. You know how I can prove it to you? I already touched on it a little bit earlier. We could all look and say, man, look at those people, the Pharisees and the Jews. How stupid were they? God was right there, all this stuff. But have you all thought about the fact that the Bible says that God lives within you and me now? Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 15 and following says, On that day, around verse 21, on that day you will know that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. Everything that the Father has is mine and I'm going to make it known to you. I'm going to lead you, I'm going to guide you, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've said. I have more to tell you, more than you can now bear, but when the Spirit of truth comes, He's going to guide you into all the truth. And we still sit there and say, Jim, I can't learn as much as you. I can't understand the scriptures. You tell us to read the Old Testament and to read the New Testament and look at the prophecies. Well, you've been to seminary. You've been trained. And all you're saying is what God has promised is not true. Has he not said that he'll lead you? He'll guide you? He'll give you understanding? Our jobs as preachers and teachers is not to get you to listen to us and to follow us. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, that you all grow up into him who is the head, that you'll no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. But you'll grow up into him who is the head as you all find out how it is you fit into the body and you build each other up. Folks, our job is not to draw away disciples after ourselves. Our job is to point you to Jesus, to show you the truth of the word, and to tell you he lives within you. And don't waste this time tonight looking at how, boy, those people really blew it. You've got Jesus in you right now every single day and you choose on a daily basis whether or not you're going to interact with him. 2 Peter 2 and 3. 2 Peter 2 and 3, go ahead and quote it for us. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our true knowledge of him who called us. Yep. And we have along with that, he goes in the next verse, is the ability to take advantage of all the great and precious promises. You got it. Go ahead. I can't be quiet anymore. Uh, go for it. Forgive me. Uh, completely unrelated, but exactly. He said to Peter, get out of the boat. He said, Lord, if you tell me, I'll get out of this boat. He said, Lord, if you empower me, I could do anything you tell me to do. That's it. That's it. And I believe our society doesn't change because we just don't choose to listen to them. And that's because the enemy's there whispering at the same time saying you can't. And that's what we have to choose. Are we going to believe the word of God or are we going to believe the enemy? And you're right. And I'll be honest with you. I myself, I still too miss out on much God wants to do through Jim Johnson because I'm timid. And I really don't believe. I have to remind myself every day the same spirit that was in him is in me. You got it. Every day. You got it. Because that's what says to me the only reason I can be different is because it's not me. You got it. And so I just want to encourage you. You have God within you right now. Someone greater than Jonah lives within you. Someone greater than Solomon lives within you. Go ahead. John 14, 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, you shall do greater things than I have. Yeah, I love it. You'll do even greater things. You'll do even greater things than I have. Yes. But what's happened is, and this goes way back into the church history, folks. Unfortunately, we've broken from a lot of Roman Catholicism, but that false mindset of 
That those guys with the robes and the degrees are the ones who are going to know more than us. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. We're to just be pointing you to the truth and the Spirit of God who comes to live within you. He'll lead you and guide you and He will do amazing things. The question is, do we believe it? And I just want to encourage you, go read the Word. Don't say to yourself, yeah, but if God will just get me this job or if I could just get this one thing and then I'll, I'll serve Him. No, He says, I've already given you everything you need. Like you just quoted from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of me. You, have all, you don't need a second baptism like some churches are trying to teach. You have already got everything in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily, and you have been given fullness in Him. Go ahead, Glenn. Step out into the water. Ste it, when He says to step out, step out. Unfortunately, there's some people who say, well, I'm going to step out. No, no, no. You, faith is not faith until God has spoken. When, but once you, there's promises He's already made, practice those. Step out in those areas. And I'm telling you, you will start to experience and you'll start seeing things. I love it when people come and say, I was hearing you talking. And then while you're talking, God showed me this. My daughter right now, as I shared with you, has come on staff with the ministry. And she's actually taking my devotionals and the radio program and some of my Bible studies and turning them into written form. And we can't wait until the day when they finally get out. We can just give them away. But I'm editing her writings that she's done, not in the grammar, because I'm not good at that. I'm talking, I'm just kind of reading it theologically and making sure it matches up with Scripture. And she's been taking five-minute radio programs that I've made and turning them into little devotionals. The book she's working on right now is a 52-week devotional through the Gospel of John, taking the radio programs that I've done on the Gospel of John into 52 weeks. And so it'll be week one, and there'll be five days of a little challenge each day from the radio program. And as I reread them, I realize she's had to take five minutes of me talking and turn it into two paragraphs. And she's writing things, and I'll call her and I'll say, that's awesome, but I didn't say that on my radio program. She goes, yeah, but God kind of showed it to me. Is it okay? I'm like, yeah, it's okay. That's awesome. And as a dad, that excites me. But also as a pastor and a preacher and a teacher, it excites me because my daughter's getting to hear the Lord for herself. That's pretty cool. Folks, let's jump over to the next section. It is a jump what happens here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Let me just say this to you. Remember, Matthew compiles a lot of stuff. If you try to read the Gospel of Matthew chronologically, it's going to mess you up. You really need to kind of read Matthew with the other Gospels together so that you'll understand a little bit better of the timeline. Mark does a better job of this happened than this happened and so on. Once in a while, you'll see Matthew say that. But Matthew compiles stuff. And this next section seems to just jump out crazy. But it's pretty important that we study it. In chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus, and by the way, if you've got one of those Bibles that has Jesus' words in red, you'll notice this whole section is all in red. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil Generation. Let me say something to you real quick. I'm going to read this section to you again because I'm pretty sure most of us haven't ever, ever heard anybody ever preach on this passage of Scripture much, if ever. So I'm going to read it to you one more time and we're going to break it down and unpack it. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Let me ask you a question as we begin to break this down. Is Jesus talking about demons leaving and coming back into a house or a person? Person. It's very clear. He uses the term house to kind of illustrate it in a picture, but then he comes back and says person. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jim. Uh -huh. I don't understand the context from what he just finished talking about to the next paragraph. Well, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. The, 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 there isn't a flow because Matthew, Matthew compiles. That's why I just told you it's going to seem like he just jumps to something else. I could show you a little bit of a similarity because you can see that he's talking about how the, the, the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba is going to judge this generation. And he's talking about this generation but if you try to make it flow in context, it's going to mess you up a little bit. Because like I say, Matthew compiles. All right. 
So we know that Jesus is talking about an evil spirit leaving a person and coming back with other evil spirits back into this person. Let me say on the, on the surface, this, these verses show us that moral reform is not enough to save or even cleanse someone. Okay, let me just say that up front. Moral reform, just getting your life cleaned up, is not enough to fix people's problem. All right? You must be born again. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight as we take a look at this. You must be born again. There has to be a spiritual change inside of you or else you're in trouble, even if you clean up your life. You remember how we talked earlier how the Pharisees had disciples who were doing exorcism? Remember how we talked about that? And Jesus said, you go ask your disciples, your sons who are doing exorcism, what power is it that they're using? And, but just because the Pharisees' disciples were casting demons out of people, does that mean those people were automatically saved because the demons were cast out? No. There's a lot of people that think, if I can just stop drinking, I'll be okay. And I hope you stop drinking. Or if I can stop doing the drugs, I'll be okay. And I hope you stop doing the drugs. But is that going to fix it? No, there's a spiritual condition and a spiritual issue. And that's why I want you to see the issue in this story is that when even though the evil spirit had come out, he came back and found the house what? Empty. Empty. And it had been swept clean. It had cleaned up his life. But that's not good enough. Let me show you a couple of things that kind of help you see this. Go to John chapter three. John chapter three. And then we're going to John chapter five. And John chapter three. Look at verses one through eight. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do. They're the signs again, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He's thinking physical born. Uh, he says, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to pull out something here in just a second that I want to kind of chase because it's something God showed me within the last three weeks. So I really can't wait to show it to you. But let me just kind of lay the foundation first. Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know you're from God. Nobody could do the signs that you're doing unless God were with him. And Jesus crazily says to him, you need to be born again or else you can't see the kingdom of God. And this comes out of left field to him. He's like, what are you talking about? I mean, like, go back in my mother's womb? I don't understand. And Jesus says, no, what's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. You have to be born again of the spirit in order to get into the kingdom. But then he makes this very interesting statement. I want you to look at it closely because this hopefully will help us in this whole mess that we've gotten ourselves into in the church today about predestination and free will and Calvinism versus Arminianism. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, in other words, you see the evidence of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And I was sitting in a church a couple weeks ago and kind of looking through the Scriptures, and God began to speak to me from this passage. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, those who are born again of the Spirit, you're going to see the evidence of it, but you won't know how it happens. Isn't that what he says here? Yet, what do we do? We spend all our time arguing with each other over how it happens. Oh, no, there has to be this, then that, and then this, and then God does that. Doesn't the Bible say that if you're saved, God did it? But doesn't the Bible also say that if you don't respond, you're going to be held accountable? And then we start to figure out, well, how can man respond if God does it? And if man responds, that means God didn't do it because man had a part. And, and, and all. we start trying to figure it all out. And we set up ourselves into the camps of, well, I'm this side and I'm that side. And we listen, Jesus said, you won't understand how God saves people. You'll just see the evidence of it. And you know what? That's good enough with me. Folks, as I preach the word of God and I share the scriptures, I'll look you in the eye and I'll tell you the scripture says this. If you come to faith, Jesus did it. The scripture says it was him. It's a gift. At the same time, the Bible also says that everybody hears and everybody's accountable. And if you don't go to heaven, it's because you chose not to. Leave it alone. Don't get yourselves into these camps that are dividing the church today. 
Jesus said, you're going to see the evidence of the Spirit, but you're not going to know how it's done. But he says, you have to be born again. The issue, like I said, though, was the unclean spirit came back and found the house empty. Let me go over to chapter five. Let me show you something. We've always assumed that when Jesus cast a demon out of somebody, they automatically were saved. We've just assumed that, haven't we? I mean, Jesus cast the demon out. They're saved. Listen to what, what happened in John chapter five. Look at verses one through 14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, uh, Bethes sorry, Beth Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of in invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now some of you might have a different translation than me and say, wait a minute, you left a verse off. How many of you have a verse 4 in your Bible in John chapter 5? How many of you have a verse 4? Okay, a few of you. If you have a verse four, your uh, translation of the Bible translated from the later manuscripts. There's two main sets of manuscripts that were translated from to make our Bibles. There's a group that are all exactly the same that are closer to the originals. We don't have the originals that were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on. We have a pile that were translated, and we know from the dating of them that they were closer to that. Those manuscripts don't have that verse. They're older. Very good. They're older. There's another pile that are closer to our time, newer, if you will, and they have some verses that the other pile doesn't have. That's why you'll notice in some of your Bibles, they don't, there's no verse four. But if you write this down and you can double check me, you go look in your Bibles, though, and you'll see in uh, John chapter uh, 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, 11, there's a section and there'll be a line above it in your Bible and a line below it. And a little note will say the earliest manuscripts don't have this. That's the story of Jesus telling the woman uh, who, you know, those who without sin go ahead and throw the first stone. You'll also notice in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You'll see a line above that and a line below that, and it'll say the earliest manuscripts don't have these verses. Now, our translations that don't translate from the, tr the manuscripts that have those extra verses will, when it's a big section, put it in, but then make that little notation. But to make our numbers all match up, you'll notice that verse 4 is missing. Now, I will show you, though, verse 4 simply says, for in the other translations that have it, and it was probably added by oral tradition, and I don't think it changes the scripture at all, because the actual manuscripts that these were translated from, as you're about to see, the context shows that this did happen. But verse 4 simply says that whenever an angel would come and randomly stir the water, whoever was the first one in the pool of water would be healed. Okay? So... So let's read this section again. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is, has five roof colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been in an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. So you see the context shows that verse 4 that has been added in the other manuscripts doesn't contradict it at all. Do you, do you, he says, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now the day, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Now afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Not interesting. Doesn't that look a little familiar to what we just heard Jesus talk about in Matthew 12? Got a man who got the house swept clean. This man had gotten his life fixed, but he hadn't been born again. See, a lot of people are more worried about just getting their life fixed. Listen to me. Moral reform is not enough to save someone or even fully cleanse you. You have to be born again. There has to be a spiritual transformation where the spirit of God comes to indwell you. And that's what makes a real Christian, folks, not people that say they're a believer in Jesus and they follow Jesus. There has to be a real transformation where the spirit of God comes in and seals you. It'll be evidenced in time how he does it. We just leave that to him. 
The Bible says very clearly that we need Jesus in us and controlling us to protect us from the evil one and his minions. I'm going to show you about that in a little bit. But let me just, why do you think Jesus said to this man, go and sin no more so something worse may not happen to you? His house has been swept empty. He definitely, his house has been swept empty. But why does he tell him to go sin and go sin no more? Exactly. Same reason he said to the woman in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. You remember the purpose of the law is to what? Show us we can't keep it, right? And that we need a Savior. This man had been healed. Oh, by the way, I don't know how many of you ever caught the miracle of this healing. How long had he been an invalid? 38 years. Anybody know anything about muscles and what happens to you if you don't use them? What would have happened to this man if he had been invalid for 38 years? Complete atrophy. He didn't get healed and then go to physical therapy and learn to walk again. He got up and walked. Oh, and then Jesus did something he knew was going to get in the craw of the Pharisees. He said, oh, by the way, don't just get up. Grab your mat and carry it. Because he knew it was on a, sab a Sabbath. He knew it was on a Sabbath. He says, pick up your mat and carry it. That's going to get the attention of the Pharisees. Because they're going to be more interested in the fact you're carrying your mat than the fact that you've been healed this miracle. But he then says to him, he says, look, now that you've made made well, you're not saved yet. You got to get your spiritual condition taken care of. And folks, let me just tell you, we've got family members and we got friends and we would love to see them get off the drugs and just get back in right with God and all that. What we need to be praying is that the spirit of God is allowed to do his work in their life, not just that they just get cleaned up. A lot of people think they got cleaned up and that's good enough. That's not enough. We need God's spirit to come to indwell us and to seal us and to protect us from the evil one. Go to John chapter 17. As you're turning to John 17, remember how in Ephesians 6, that the Bible talks about how we're to put on the full armor of God to protect ourselves against who? The enemy. Remember, we, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual authorities of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen to what Jesus says, though, in John 17. There's something we need to see here. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Talking about a time for him to die. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorified me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested my name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now I'm praying for them. Now I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus said, Father, protect them from the evil one. I want you to guard them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. And I've lost none except for the one that never was one. We'll deal with that in a little bit. What does it mean then when Jesus says protect them from the evil one? Was, does, is he saying, Father, don't let anything bad happen to them? Can't be, because if you know every one of these guys, what happened to them? They were all murdered and martyred and persecuted for their faith. John eventually was, but he lived the longest. And, but at the same time, when he says guard them and protect them from the evil one, keep them in your name. He's not saying don't let Satan ha have any way in their lives. What's he saying? Don't let the devil enter them, for definitely, but go, go further. Save, destroy the spirit. 
okay, don't let Satan destroy their spirit. That's good too, but there's something more. They have eternal life. Yes. Lord, you protect them and hold on to them spiritually. Remember what Jesus said, if I remove Satan... By the power of God, then the, the, power, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, if you're going to remove the strong man, someone stronger than the strong man's got to come in. So when he's saying is, 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 Father, when you save them, you come in and you don't let Satan ever touch that relationship. That they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. We've read this for years that Jesus was praying that we'd all get along. And there's lots of passages in the scripture that talk about. But if you keep going back to John 17, you'll see him say this over and over. And he'll say, I in them and you in me. He's talking. He says, Father, I want them to have the same solid relationship that you and I have. Protect them. Guard them. You protect them. Listen, well, let, me, let me just show it to you this way. Go to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. It makes it very, very clear. First Peter chapter one, and we'll start in verse three. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. What? Kept in heaven. Who's holding on to it? God is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. There it is through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And listen to what the scripture says. Praise God that we've been given this salvation and we're not holding on to it. It's God who seals us. It's God who saves us. Let me show you another example of this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Nope, I was right. Chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 21 and 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 2. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? As a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, we don't have time because of what we need to get to tonight and we're almost done. I want you to write some of these verses down so you can study them for yourself. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Let me quote it to you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of our inheritance. Folks, let me tell you something. If God seals you and he guarantees that you'll go to heaven, do you ever have to worry about whether or not you're going to lose your salvation? No, that's why you need to put that helmet of salvation on so Satan can't mess with you anymore. Because I know many of us went through periods of our lives where we wondered, am I really saved? Am I not? Am I saved? Am I not? Once you know that it's been signed, sealed, and delivered, and God's Spirit has told you, and He's confirmed it, because Romans 8, verse 16 says, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children. Once you get that settled, don't let Satan mess with you anymore, and let's start moving on in boldness because we're His children. In John chapter 6, write this down. Look at it, verses 35 through 39. Jesus says twice, John 6, 35 through 39, Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. So if the Bible says that Jesus isn't going to lose you, I think that settles it too. We've already talked about 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Folks, the Bible is very, very clear that you have to be born again. You can get your life cleaned up. But if it's not indwelt by God himself in his spirit during that time, the demons are going to come back and they're going to bring some buddies and you're going to be worse than you were at the start. Now, for those of you who say, well, Judas, Judas was lost. You know, the Bible is very, very clear that Judas was never saved. Let me show you real quickly in John 13. Go to John chapter 13. I'll read the the. Chapter, verse, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read pretty quickly because there's something I want to close with tonight. John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And John 13, look at verse 1 through 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, listen, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jump down to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his <coughs> excuse me, disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, listen closely, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, go do quickly. And now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that he was going to go do something for the poor or whatever. Listen, what happened to Judas? <laughs> he, he got indwelt by who? Satan himself. It's one thing to have a demon and maybe even seven demons, but Satan himself came and indwelt Judas. By the way, are we surprised at how Judas acted in the, day, in the hours that followed right after that? He was walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus. He even was able to do miracles as he sent him out two by two. But the Spirit of God never sealed him. And because his house was swept clean, but he never got born again, there came a point because the house was empty that Satan actually came in and dwelt him. Folks, I know we have family members and friends that we'd love to be saved but too many of us still say, well, he's really a good boy and she's really a good girl. No, they need to be born again. Because that's the real issue. Because the only way they're going to, and the only way you and I can even make it in this world is if Jesus himself not only erases our sin, but comes to indwell us and he holds on to us. Now, the scripture is very clear. Write this down, look at it later on. 1 John 2 verses 18 and 20 says this, they went out from us. But their going out showed that they were never of us, because if they were of us, they would have stayed. They're going to be those who, and we're going to deal with that when we come back and look at Matthew 13 and the parable of the soils and the parable of the weeds and the wheat. We're going to be dealing with that in more detail, how the evidence of whether or not someone's truly born again is not that they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or cried a cry or baptized, but over time, is there an evidence of the Spirit of God within them? And we're going to deal with that in time. What I want to do in the last couple minutes that we have left, and I know what time it is, and we're going to do it fast, but you only can be mad at me for two weeks if I go five minutes longer tonight, is I want to deal with something that I think will be helpful for you from this passage, but also will not only encourage you, but keep you from going into areas you shouldn't go. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 43. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. We could try to figure out what the waterless places the evil spirits go through is, or why the evil spirits beg to be cast into the pigs instead of the abyss before the appointed time. You remember in the story of the demoniac and how when Jesus walked up, the demons in the man knew who Jesus was, and they said, we know who you are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? And they're kind of freaked out because they know that there's a time coming where they're going to be cast into the pit, and they beg to go into the pigs. And Jesus gave them permission. By the way, how long did they last in the pigs? Not too long. As soon as they came into the pigs, the pigs all committed suicide and uh, made pig soup. But listen, we could try to figure out what the waterless places are that the evil spirits go through is or why the evil spirits beg to be cast into the pigs instead of the abyss before it's time. But we would be speculating on things that we really haven't been given insight to. And I want to keep you from trying to delve into things of the spiritual realm that the Bible says not very much about. 
There's a lot of people that get caught up into demonology and exorcism and stuff, and they think they can figure out how the spiritual realm works. And folks, if we all agreed already that we don't know how God saves people, we know what the scripture says we must do and that it's God's work and that we must believe and that all that, but we don't understand it. Don't think for a second you can understand the spiritual realm and there's too many Christians that are out there chasing Satan. I want you to just, I, I, I'm going to tell from personal experience, my wife and I went through a period of that when we were new Christians and, well, not new Christians, but new, newlyweds as we were in church in New Orleans and we got sucked into a group that was doing all that kind of stuff and we would do 24 hours of fasting while we would try to get demons out of people and folks, pretty soon we start getting to, so tormented like you wouldn't believe, we started seeing demons everywhere. And thank God for a godly old pastor who sat me down and put a Bible in front of me and said to me, um, have you ever noticed that uh, Paul only talked about Jesus? He said, we as Christians are to be focusing on Jesus. We're not to be fighting Satan. The Bible says, submit yourself therefore to God. Just resist him and he'll flee. You're not to go chasing him. And a lot of people try to get caught up into demon stuff and they want to figure out what's going on in the spiritual realm. And there's lots of stuff out there in the, in the internet and all that. Don't go there. But I think the Bible actually does give us a glimpse of what the waterless places is, and it'll help you. We're going to close with one passage. Go to Psalm. Go to Psalm chapter 63. As you're going to Psalm 63, this much the scripture tells us. We know that there's a, there is a spiritual realm. We don't know that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. But to go any further and trying to fully grasp how the spiritual realm works and to act like we fully understand it would be silly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we right, we right now see through a glass dimly. One day we'll see clearly. But in Psalm 63, listen to what David says here. I told you to turn there and I didn't do it. And here I am. I'll catch up with you here. Psalm 63, listen to what he says. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in you, the shadow, and sorry, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. Who is the living water? Jesus. Where are the waterless places? Anything that doesn't have Jesus. Anything that he's not a part of. We don't need to go any further than that. Folks, go drink from the well that is already within you. He loves you, and I love you. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for coming.